Amen. Thank you, Miss Marcy. Grateful for that. All right, the rest of you can open up your Bible to Romans chapter 8. I'm getting used to that at this point. Romans chapter 8, we'll be looking at verses 12 through 17, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. Romans 8, verses 12 through 17. Now, while you're turning your Bibles, let me share with you something that surprised me over the last few years. Over the last few years, I've been surprised by a cultural phenomenon that I was totally unaware of before. And this is people who are very interested in the ongoings of the British royal family. I was not aware that this was a thing at all. And I'm not talking about British people. I'm talking about people who live here in a country formed by overthrowing British rule. And people who are just really fascinated by it. I happen to live with one. And I had no idea that this was a thing, whether it's the royal wedding or it's the crown or it's the next Princess Diana movie or documentary or the funeral for the queen, which was watched by an estimated 4.1 billion people worldwide. Not million, billion. That blew me away when I heard that number. One of the most fascinating things about all of this coverage of the royal family, one of the kind of principal and preeminent questions in any discussion of the royals is the question of what belongs to whom, of what belongs to whom. It's the question of inheritance, who inherits the crown, who inherits the fortune, who inherits the throne. And the question of inheritance is a question that kind of coincides with the desire that we all feel, an aching and a hunger that we have for a royal inheritance. And in some ways, the royal family becomes a picture of something everyone longs for, which is a glorious inheritance. And I actually think that desire is hardwired into us. Whether we're interested in the royals or not, I think we're hardwired with a desire for a glorious inheritance. It's something that's worth desiring, and it's something that's to be treasured above all things. And Romans 8, 12 through 17 is going to talk with us about a glorious inheritance. And it's not going to be the inheritance of a royal family in one place at one time. It's going to be the royal inheritance that belongs to God's children. So I want us to look at Romans 8, 12 through 17. I'll read it. After I'll read it, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. You're invited to respond with thanks be to God. The reason we do this isn't just some cold, dead ritual. It's because we want to give thanks for God's word. So let me read Romans 8, beginning in verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and of children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, Paul has introduced back in verse 9 a word that I want us to zero in on because I think that this word in verse 9 
really carries with it all the way through verse 14. And that word is belong. Look at verse 9. We, we looked at this last week, but I want us to just consider it again. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. This question of belonging kind of frames, I think, verses 9 all the way through verse 17. The question of belonging is a crucial question. Because who we belong to is going to shape the direction of our lives. It's going to shape our great hopes, desires, joys, and loves. And like we discovered last week, we are not born into this world belonging to God. We are not born into this world as a part of God's family. We are born into this world as spiritual rebels, spiritual terrorists. We are not uh, sons and daughters of God. We are strangers alienated from God because of sin. And verses 12 through 14 are really kind of calling back this question of who do we belong to? And Paul is relying on the contrast he made in the verses that preceded, the contrast between the life in the spirit and the life in the flesh. Last week we looked at this in verses 5 through 11, that life in the flesh is marked by hostility to God and it's headed towards death. Life in the flesh is marked by us living in accordance with our own preferences, our own desires. It's not a road of faithfulness to God. It's a road marked by faithfulness to self. That's what life in the flesh is. Your fundamental loyalty is to you and you alone. But Paul contrasts this life in the flesh with life in the spirit, which is not marked by faithfulness towards self. It's marked by faithfulness towards God. Now, what Paul was telling us in the verses that precede our passage today is this. We need a new engine. We need that there needs to be a change of our heart so that there can be a change of our mind, so that there can be a change of our life. Last week we asked, what's in your heart, what's on your mind? Because Paul knows that what's in your heart is going to shape what you dwell on, what you meditate on, what you think on, what you worship. And that's what we were exploring last week, that what we worship is grounded in who or what we love. That oftentimes the things that we give our attention to, the things that we give our devotion to, are an indicator of what engine is driving the worship, the love, the dreams, the imagination, the affection of our hearts. And Paul is saying we got to have a change here. And in verse 12, he's coming back to that. So let's look at it. So then, brothers, we are debtors... But he immediately caveats this, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Paul's speaking to an audience, and he's presuming at this moment that he's speaking to an audience of Christians. He calls them brothers. We are debtors. We are debtors, not to the flesh. Why not to the flesh? Because there's been a change of what's happening in our heart. For Christians, we are no longer marked or defined by life in the flesh. We are now marked and defined by life in the spirit because of the work of regeneration, where God enters into our life by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit and takes a hard heart towards God and replaces it with a soft heart towards God. That's regeneration. And when that happens, now all of a sudden we can begin to experience transformation in what we think and transformation in what we do because there's been a transformation of who we are. We're no longer separated from God. We're now sons and daughters. We're no longer fundamentally marked by Adam's rebellion. We're now fundamentally marked by Christ's obedience. 
And when that happens, there are some things that begin to get set in motion. The transformation begins to start. But Paul wants to continue to call their attention to this. Look at verse 13. We're not debtors to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Why? For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. This is what Paul was saying last week. Life according to the flesh ends in death. Now, life according to the flesh in this world, it can be immensely gratifying. It can be immensely gratifying to do whatever you want. It can be immensely gratifying to have your desires, your preferences, your values, the things that you really want be the thing that are always being satisfied and satiated by the world around you. It can be immensely gratifying for a moment to live life in the flesh. But the road... It leads to a place of death. It leads to a place of destruction. It leads to a place of exhaustion. This is where life in the flesh leads. It's where it goes. Now, many of us have tried living life in the flesh. Many of your stories are, man, I tried to kind of get glory. I tried to get joy. I tried to get love. I tried to get happiness on my own terms. And it didn't matter how much I tried to drink it into oblivion, how much I tried to use it into oblivion, how much I tried to receive love to get that, to take it out. I could not satisfy the deep desires of my heart in the life of this world. That is in many ways the message of Ecclesiastes which is try as you might, you cannot fill up the void of eternity in your heart with the grains of sand that is the world's satisfaction. It's not going to happen. But life according to the flesh can convince us that because it's immediately gratifying, it's going to forever be gratifying, and it's not. Even though it's immediately satisfactory, it leads to a place of destruction. It leads to a place of death. And Paul contrasts this with life in the Spirit. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And then look at verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So Paul is telling us, he's saying, listen, when you're born into this world, you're born into a life, a path that is a life lived according to the flesh. It can feel gratifying for a moment, but it leads to death in the end. But God is kind and gracious, and he will step in, and he will rebirth you. He will make you new. And having made you new, do you know what happens now? Now there is the ability every day to step into life and say, am I going to live life according to the flesh, or am I going to live life according to the Spirit? Paul is moving his audience forward and he wants us to see something that's vital for us to understand. Before the Spirit makes us alive in Christ, there is no path we can walk on but the path of life lived according to the flesh. We're consigned there. We're unable and unwilling to live life by the power of the Holy Spirit. But once the Spirit has done the great work we cannot do, once God has regenerated a hard heart and made us alive, now every day is a question to us of what path, what life will we live? Will we live life according to the flesh or will we live life according to the spirit? And every day is an invitation to step on to that path. And it can be very easy for us to convince ourselves that having been saved, it now does not matter at all how we will now live. But Paul is telling you, 
that if that's the way you think, then you may not have encountered the salvation you believe that you have. He's wanting to raise the question here. Are you someone who wants to live life according to the Spirit? Because if not, have you been given life according to the Spirit? For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. How do we know we're living life according to the Spirit? How do we know that we are led by the Spirit of God? How do we know that our claim is more than just a claim? How do we know that our claim is substantiated? How do we know that our claim is substantiated? Well, Paul is going to give us a couple of ways to think about this. But the one way he's pointing to right now is this. We have a good indication that we are living life by the Spirit of God, as children of God, when we engage in the daily work of putting to death the deeds of the body. Let me tell you, you will experience low degrees of assurance of salvation if you engage in low degrees of Christian obedience. They're supposed to be connected together. If you kind of feel like, man, I'm not really walking in obedience to God, you should not expect high degrees of confidence that you belong to God. There's an intimate relation between our faithfulness to God being lived on the foundation of God's grace and a spiritual empowerment and authority that comes with saying, I am a child of God. I am living life by the power of the Spirit of God because if the Spirit of God wasn't indwelling in me, I could not live the life I'm living. And the New Testament is only envisioning that the Christian life is possible because of the Spirit of God. The New Testament, and Paul in particular, he would have no conception of us saying, yeah, I'm a Christian, without us being able to say, I'm a Christian, and the way I'm living would be impossible apart from the indwelling power and presence of the Spirit of God. So is the way you're living the Christian life, would it be totally unintelligible if you subtracted the presence and power of the Holy Spirit from it? Would it be inconceivable for you to live the way that you're living apart from the power and presence of the Spirit of God? Because the Bible is inviting us to a Christian faith that is inconceivable apart from the daily activity of the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. How do we know who we belong to? Well, one of the things that Paul is pointing towards here as an indicator is the fruit of our life. The fruit of our life. Is the fruit of our life a picture of our belonging to God? Do you live according to the flesh? Do you experience conviction of sin? Do you rely on the comfort of the Holy Spirit on your deepest and darkest moments? Do you put to death the deeds of the body? Do you desire what God says is best? This is not the whole picture, but it is a crucial picture when considering Am I a child of God? Is the Spirit of God active in me? It's not the whole picture, but it's a crucial picture. We aren't born into this world living in God's family. We are born into this world strangers. 
We are focused on self. We are giving our worship away to lesser things. As Romans 1 said, we're giving our worship away to creaturely things. But God invites us to live as his children. And what God invites us to, God makes a way towards. And he does this in Christ Jesus, through his grace, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Meaning that even though we are born in this world in the flesh, in Adam, desperately needing a new representative, desperately needing a change of core nature, desperately needing a righteousness credited to us, even though we need all these things, God provides them graciously. He provides them graciously. He pulls us out of the muck and mire of sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. He makes us alive in Christ Jesus, and then he calls us his children. Think about verse 14. Look at it. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, Paul's about to invite us into an extended meditation on this, but let me go ahead and spoil it for you because I need you to understand this. Learning to live as a child of God That's where the excitement is in the Christian life. Do you want to know where the deepest joys are in the Christian life? Do you want to know where the deepest hopes and deepest loves are in the Christian life? Do you want to know what makes the Christian life an adventure that makes it worth more than Sunday morning from 10 to 11.15? It's learning to live as a child of God. That's the core. That's the adventure. That's what it is after we experience salvation. It's learning to live day by day that one of the central blessings of salvation is that we are now children of God. Look at verse 15. Because Paul invites us into a meditation on this that's really profound. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. How are we made children of God? How do strangers and sojourners and rebels and spiritual terrorists, how are they transformed from that into life as a child of God? Well, it is through the glorious work of adoption. Of adoption. A wonderful word. An incredible truth. Adoption. To be brought into something that we do not possess by nature. Adoption. To be brought into something that is all of grace and love. Adoption. And salvation The truth of adoption reminds us that God doesn't just declare us forgiven. God declares us family. It's not just forgiveness that God invites us into in the gospel. It's family. It's fellowship. Now, some of you are very gracious people, okay? You're very gracious. You're very, very gracious. You're quick to extend forgiveness, But I know that for many of us, we would be willing to extend forgiveness further than we would extend fellowship, right? For a lot of us, we'd be willing to extend forgiveness maybe 100 yards further than we would extend family. Maybe if somebody's wronged you, you can envision saying, 
you know what, I forgive you. But it's a totally different thing to say, you know what, why don't you come and live with me? That's a different thing. And the good news of the gospel is not merely that God forgives us. A judge can forgive. This is as if the judge forgives and then says, do you know whose home you will feast in tonight? My home. This is a glory of the gospel that's often neglected, that God doesn't just declare us forgiven, he declares us family. And I don't know that we've really grappled with this. I don't know that we've really considered the depth of what this means because I think that if you want to see true renewal in the life of the church, it is a group of people who begin to believe with their whole heart and live out with their whole life the glorious good news that they are children of God. If you want to know where spiritual renewal exists in your life, it will begin with you believing and living and trying to sink it deep into the corners of your heart, the truth that you belong to God as a child and that he loves you not merely with a love that forgives, though certainly not less than that, but a love that fellowships, a love that delights. Two spirits are contrasted here in verse 15. Look at it. Paul says, you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. That's the first spirit. The second is the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. There is a contrast here, not of life according to the spirit and life according to the flesh, but of life according to the spirit of fear, the spirit of slavery, and life according to the spirit of adoption. The spirit of slavery leads to what? It leads to fear. Spirit of slavery leads to fear. This kind of fear that Paul has in mind here is this perpetual, unknowing uncertainty as to who we are and who God is. It's kind of living with this perpetual indecisiveness that attends with going, I'm not really sure what God thinks about me. Maybe God is still waiting to make up his mind. Maybe he's still leveling the scales with my good and my bad. It's this kind of gross uncertainty that begins to mark our lives and it paralyzes us from living bold, courageous, joy-filled life in a world of despair, isolation, and rebellion. And I, and I think right now, if I, could just, if I could just get on a soapbox... I think right now we need fearless Christians. And many people are saying we need fearless Christians. But I'll tell you, we will never have a fearless Christian witness until Christians believe that ultimately they've been adopted as children of God. You're never going to have a fearless family of God until you believe you're truly in the family of God. You're never going to have a fearless witness in the church if you do not believe that God is not waiting to make up his mind about you, but you know what he thinks about you because you know what he thinks about his son and you have rooted your life in the son of God, Jesus Christ. Before you can live bold, you must live beloved. You will not be bold in the faith if you do not believe the faithful God counts you beloved. You will not risk your life if you think that love is up for bargain. You'll never do it. It'll never be there. When you begin to believe that you are beloved by God, you will not have to moralize yourself into boldness. It will come. You ever seen somebody walk in the power of knowing 
that they are delighted in and nothing can change that? It's a different kind of power. It's a different kind of life because there's a different kind of confidence. Different kind of confidence. Two spirits are contrasted here. A spirit of slavery that leads to fear and a spirit of adoption that leads to fellowship. And it will transform us when we begin to believe that we can address God as Father and that that means more than just a theological concept. And I wonder if it does. I wonder if we really believe that we can come to God not as a concept of Father, but as our true Father. And I know there are hurdles to this. I know that because of the brokenness of this world and the brokenness of even good men among it, it is not always that our fathers have been good examples of what a good father could be. Some of us have been blessed by it, but many others have not received that blessing. And it can be a hurdle on the route to believing that God the Father is truly better than the best the world could provide and is welcoming you into a delighting love of which you are not a debtor, but you are a gift receiver. I know it's hard, and I know the hurdles are there. The Spirit of God, in my prayer for you this morning, because there is no wordsmithing, there's no prose, there's no poetry, there's no illustration I can use that will, will, will solve and heal the wounds of your heart. But my prayer is that what you will find is that you will find a beautiful redemption, not in rejecting God as Father, but embracing him as the Father that you have always needed and desired. Because he is. He is. He is a father who is faithful, even when our earthly fathers have been unfaithful. He is a father who is good and trustworthy, even when our earthly fathers have been deceptive. He is a father who is perfect and righteous. He always keeps his promises, even when our earthly fathers do not. And he is a father whose love is not up for bargain or for sale. It is a delighting and a forgiving love that never runs out. He is a good father. It's more than a song, it's a truth, and it's a truth because of the glorious nature of adoption, that we are recipients of the delighting love of God the Father. To learn to live as an adopted child of God is the great adventure of the Christian life. I'm convinced of it. I'm absolutely convinced. This is where all the joy, excitement, wonder of the Christian life is hidden living from the identity of being a child of God, a member of God's family in Jesus Christ. And when we learn to live as a child of God, we, re- we realize that God is not inviting us into a cold detachment from him, but a warm relationship with him. I think about this story that Brennan Manning told about the Pope, which I think captures the delight of God the Father and his children. Jacqueline Kennedy, wife of then-President JFK, was visiting the Vatican. And Pope John asked the Secretary of State, what's the proper way to address the wife of the president? He replied, well, it would be proper to say, Madam, or Miss Kennedy, or Miss First Lady. The Secretary left, and a few minutes later, the First Lady, Jacqueline Kennedy, comes and stands in the doorway. The Pope's eyes light up. He runs over to her. He throws his arms around her and he says, Jacqueline. I love that. I love that. Let me tell you something. When God sees you at the door, he runs towards you. He throws his arms around you and he shouts your name. He shouts out Travis and Rachel 
and Katie and Andrew and Bree and Jonathan. He shouts out your name as he greets you because he's delighted when his children enter into his presence. And that's not just when we have walked a life of holiness for decades. That's the first moment when we are declared holy in Christ Jesus. God's love for you doesn't diminish over time. And guess what? His love doesn't grow for you over time. You are as fully loved as you will ever be in Jesus Christ. The moment that you take up residence within him as you will be in the day that you meet King Jesus face to face. His love doesn't grow. Your awareness of his love does. Day by day, bit by bit. God's love isn't merely the love that forgives. It's the love of a father that delights. And this changes everything about the Christian life. Everything about the Christian life changes in light of this truth. And I want to pause here. I want to pause here. Because the truth of adoption is not just a glorious truth. It's not just a glorious part of the good news. It's also the central motivation of the Christian practice of welcoming those into their home that are not theirs by blood. And Christians have been defined for almost 2,000 years as a people who invite into their home those who do not belong to them by blood. And we have many families who have stepped into this practice in the life of our church through adoption, through foster care, through respite care. They've stepped in in order to not just believe this doctrine, but to practice this doctrine, to reflect the beautiful heart of God towards them, towards others. And I am here in front of you today, and I want to light a fire under this question for you. I want you to not just believe the glorious truth of adoption, though I want you to believe it. I want you to learn to live as a child of God. I want to light a fire under this question for you. What will you do with your belief in adoption? How will you practice it? How will you perform this doctrine in the world? It won't always look the same. But for those who say, yes, I have been adopted into the family of God, I want to ask you, what will be your plan in practicing God's heart towards you, towards others? How will you engage in this? Maybe for you and your family, maybe for you and your household, it's time to ask the question of adoption. Let me tell you, there are many who stand in need of homes that are shelters from the storm. Maybe for your household, it is time to begin a serious conversation about foster care and to say, you know what? Maybe this is the time for us to welcome in as we have been welcomed in. Maybe for some of you, that's not the season of your household. And now you can hold up the arms of other people in respite care. You can be trained to come alongside them as encouragers, as supporters, as people to share in the task, not in a primary way, but in a secondary way. Maybe for you it's becoming a CASA advocate for kids who need an advocate in the life of North Texas. Maybe it's getting involved at Prestonwood Pregnancy Center. Maybe it's writing a check to a ministry that does this. Maybe it's supporting families that pursue it. But I got to tell you, with the overturning of Roe this year, we have no more excuses left to not get in the game, to put our helmet on and jump in right now. We've had a doctrinal foundation for 2,000 years. We've had an ethic for the same. And now we have a moment, and the moment is here. And it is time for us 
in our households to have serious conversations about doing what Christians have been doing for 2,000 years, looking for the vulnerable and inviting them in because we have been. We do not enter into God's family by nature. We enter into God's family by grace. And we have the opportunity to not just believe that doctrine, but to perform that doctrine. And it will be a blessing not only to us as we discover more fully how we live with God, but it will be a blessing to the world around us. Paul, in Romans 8, 17, he has one last thing to say about our belonging. And it's good news. Look at it in verse 17. Because we're not just children of God but we're children who are heirs. Verse 17, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The the life of belonging to God the Father is a life of living as fellow heirs with Christ. Fellow heirs with Christ, what does this mean? Heirs of what? What does Paul have in mind here? Well, there's a lot. And in many ways, we'll take the next two to three weeks in Romans 8 to explore what he is indicating here. But let me just give you a few signals on the way. We are heirs of the riches of God's grace. We are heirs of the riches of God's grace. We are heirs of the riches of God's love. And we are inheritors of the world. And I don't mean that as a vague concept. I mean this world, the world that you're living in right now. It belongs to Christ as all things do. Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas, he's established it upon the rivers. The world belongs to the Lord. And if you are in Christ Jesus, you are an inheritor of what he is an inheritor of, and part of that inheritance is this world. The future heavens is not in another dimension. The future heavens is right here on the land that you walk. And one day it will belong to God's people and we will be restored as faithful stewards of God's world with all of the exploration, discovery, cultivation, beauty, wonder, and responsibility that attended to it in the garden. It will come back to us because we will be stepping in as co-heirs with Christ into a new heavens and a new earth and they will belong to us because we belong to God. It's a glorious inheritance. It's an inheritance that shocks us and amazes us. To be an heir is to be a rightful inheritor. This is who the Son of God is by nature, the rightful heir of all riches, grace, love, the righteousness of God the Father. That's who the Son of God is by nature. But what the Son of God possesses by nature, we as children of God are gifted by grace. It doesn't belong to us by nature, but it does belong to us by the gracious gift of God. And this inheritance, it's greater than any earthly king or queen. It's greater than any earthly royal line. It's not what princes and princesses of this world stand waiting for. It is something beyond all that, more beautiful than all that, more wonderful than all that. It is a glory that is coming, but there is a condition Look at the condition in verse 17. Children and heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be also glorified with him. This inheritance, it does come with a condition. And it's not a condition that bars our reception of the gift. 
It's a condition that serves as a guarantee of our inheritance. This reference to suffering, it involves a lot. It's a, it's a big word, and it encompasses a lot of different kinds of suffering and trial and affliction. But one of the principal things it means is that we will stand as people in this world, as children of God, who stand to thwart the currents of our culture, the currents of our world, the temptations of worldliness, and that when we begin to follow Jesus Christ faithfully, we will encounter resistance. We will be met with trial. We will be met with opposition. It will require sacrifice. And the glory that God is promising to us is the same glory that he promised to Jesus. And Jesus doesn't receive that glory in spite of the cross. He receives that glory through the cross. This glory that Paul has in mind here is not a glory that says all things get better when you place your faith in Jesus. It is not a glory of health, wealth, and prosperity. It is a glory that is in the shape of the cross. It is a cruciform glory. It takes on the same shape as the king of glory for whom it is his by nature. And that king's throne was not golden. It was made of wood and it was pinned to Golgotha. The throne of King Jesus is what shapes the glory that is promised to us. It is a cruciform glory. This glory comes with faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Faithfulness to Jesus Christ. The glory of God is the destination on a road that is paved not only with grace, but also with suffering for the sake of Christ. And this should not come as a surprise to anyone who reads what Jesus says about the kingdom in the Gospels. Have you read what Jesus says about the kingdom in the Gospels? He says the road is narrow. He says that they have despised him and they will despise those who seek to follow him. He says we must lay down our lives in order to gain them. Jesus does not bury the lead. He gives you the headline every time he talks about the kingdom. He tells you the kingdom is a road that is sacrificial. It is paved with sacrifice and trial. And the condition of our future glory with God is our faithfulness in the present sufferings with the presence of God right now. Our lives as children of God will look like the life of the Son of God. Should we expect it to look any different? Should we expect our life as children of God to look different than God's perfect Son? Why would we think that God would absolve us of suffering when God sends the Son of God into the world in order to endure suffering to secure glory? The promise of God is not that we will be absolved or kept from the suffering of this world. It's that he will not abandon us in the midst of it. And that every moment of suffering now is far outweighed by a glory that's coming. A glory that's coming. We'll talk all about that next week in verse 18. Our lives as children of God will be marked by knowing suffering and knowing glory. And we can say as Christians that suffering, trial, affliction will come, but the coming glory will be even greater. I love how Eugene Peterson translates these verses in the message. He says this, The resurrection life you receive from God is not a timid, grave-tending life. Let me read that again. I don't think he heard it. This resurrection life you receive from God is not a timid, grave-tending life. It's adventurously expected. Greeting God with a childlike, what's next, Papa? 
God's Spirit touches our spirits and confirms who we really are. We know who He is and we know who we are, Father and children. And we know we are going to get what's coming to us, an unbelievable inheritance. We go exactly through what Christ goes through. If we go through the hard times with Him, then we're certainly going to go through the good times with Him. We will experience affliction, trial, discomfort, and suffering as we make this journey with Christ. The glory that is coming far outweighs it. God has created us to live as a royal family. We long and desire a royal inheritance. Our hearts have eternity set within them. We are built with hearts that are glory hungry. And nothing in this world will satisfy it. But we often forsake God to look for something that looks more appealing, something more controllable, something more safe, and something that's more immediately gratifying. We're born into this world estranged from God's family. But God, by grace through faith in Christ, invites us into the family of God. And if you've never trusted in Christ, if you've never placed your faith in him, God is inviting you today to become a child of God. You don't have to linger. You don't have to wonder what God thinks of you. You can cry out to God for salvation. And when God saves you, he's immediately bringing you into his forever family. You won't become more a son or daughter of God later when you clean things up. When you enter into God's family, he begins to clean you up. Not on the threshold of his home, but in the hearth of his home. At the dinner table, God invites you to the feast as messy as you might be because he is the only one who can make you clean. Entrance into God's family, it's not ours by blood. It's not ours by right. It's not ours by nature, but it's gifted to us by grace. Immeasurable grace, inexhaustible grace. And attendance into this family is where the royal inheritance lives. This royal inheritance that's not reserved for an earthly bloodline, but is for all those who are brought under the saving blood of Christ Jesus. And this inheritance is a glorious inheritance. It's a glorious inheritance. It's an inheritance that we were born for. It's an inheritance that we are born desiring. And it's an inheritance apart from which we will never experience the satisfaction of our deepest desires. It's an inheritance of glory. And not the glory of this world, but a glory that confounds the fame and renown of this world. It is a cross-shaped glory. The glory of King Jesus and the glory of his kingdom is cruciform. And this is the glory of living as adopted sons and daughters of God. To know that there is a glorious inheritance that has become ours in Jesus. That the world and sin and Satan cannot strip it from our hands. And that though we suffer now for a moment, the glory that is coming is not momentary, but it is forever. This is what it means to be an adopted child of God. To be so confident in being beloved that we can live bold in the face of circumstances that would scare us otherwise. Living as an adopted child of God is the adventure of the Christian life. Don't settle for anything less than that. God is inviting you into more than you could possibly believe. And he's not inviting you to work your way there through a ladder that he sends down from heaven, but at the invitation to a table that he has graciously extended in his son. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace and mercy in Christ. We ask God that you would bless us as we worship, as we feast at your table, as we pray together. 
We ask God that you would use this worship to shape our hearts. I pray for those in here who have lingered too long in uncertainty over what God might think of them. I pray, God, that today would be the day where a confidence would emerge, not because they can control the outcome of their life, but because they can receive the gift of your free grace. I pray that they would. I pray that for those who have, I pray, God, that you would begin to seep into the corners of their heart the truth that they are beloved by God and that this beloved estate would become a foundation for a bold way of living that would confound the enemy, would confound the world, and that would finally begin to breathe adventure into the stale Christian lives we so often settle for. We pray all of these things in the name of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.